Well, hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I'm glad you could join us as we travel through this study of God's Word together. As the name might imply, Grasping Scripture, our focus here and our goal is to be able to understand God's Word, to take hold of it and make it part of our lives in a meaningful and understandable way. The Bible is so much more than just a historical book, a collection of passages or wise sayings. It is God's revelation of himself to us. It is God making himself known. And it is through his word that we know what he desires of us. And we know of the Christ, our Savior. So today, I'm glad you could join us as we are journeying into the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Again, this is part of a, a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. There were some distinctive issues at the church at Rome, and all of that has been covered in previous podcast or, or videocast on these chapters. So I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those if you have not, but I appreciate that you are joining us today for the study of the eighth chapter of Romans. Now join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to move forward with hearing God's word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. You have blessed us in so many ways. And Father, you have called us your children. You have adopted us into your family through Christ and through the grace that you offer to us, the forgiveness that you offer to us in Christ. And Lord, we rejoice in that. And admittedly, we're just grasping at the edges of what that really means. And yet, Father, we are so overwhelmed by your love for us that you would do this for us when we were so undeserving. And now, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your spirit, your presence in our lives to speak to our hearts, to guide us, that we might live lives overcoming the temptation of sin, and that we might bring glory to you with what we do and what we say. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that you call us yours. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're at the eighth chapter. Let's go ahead and dig in. Paul covers a lot of territory here and gets into some pretty weighty issues as well. So we want to kind of break it down as we go through. I would say the first part you might describe as, as an assurance of our eternal life or that we have life in the spirit and how that all plays out. Let's go ahead and look at the eighth chapter together, shall we? So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul has just said there in that one verse, that short phrase, is a summation of really the last three or four chapters that we've been through, if not the last seven chapters. And it's the idea that we are saved through faith, and it's God's grace at work. It is not through the law. It is not through um, overcoming our sin. It's not through being good enough or doing enough good things and not, you know, not doing many bad things or any of that. 
the reality is we stand not condemned. There is no condemnation for a peculiar group of people who, for those who belong to Christ Jesus, who belongs to Christ Jesus, those that have placed their faith in him. That's that deciding factor. God's grace is open to everyone, but only those who place their faith in him receive salvation. Only those who place their faith in him gain the right to be called the children of God. They enter into that special relationship, not because of what they have done, not because they deserved it. In fact, just the opposite. They didn't deserve it. But because that is God's grace being extended and they have placed their faith, they have appropriated that grace through faith. I could spend the whole rest of our time talking about what that means. And in some regards, we will, because it's what Paul's talking about. So let's keep going. Verse 2. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you. And he capitalized spirit there. He's referring to the Holy Spirit of God. The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And see that, that dichotomy there? You've got life-giving from the spirit. You have death from sin. So you've got the, these two things at work here. The spirit which brings life, sin which brings death. And it's which camp are you in? Are you a slave to the spirit? Are you a slave to sin? Because if you're a slave to sin, death is the only outcome. But if you're a slave to the spirit, life is the outcome. He goes on, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Remember, we've talked about the law in previous chapters. It was there to show us well, the nature and character of God. If you want to know what God's holiness looks like, the law. That's the, the, the moral character and nature of God. And we either measure up or we don't. And if we're going to measure up, we measure up 100%. Or if we fall short of that 100%, we don't measure up. Hence, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We don't measure up. But the law is to show us our need for a Savior. So the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his son in a body like bodies we sinners have. And in that body... God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us. And some translations there actually read in us instead of for us. And I'll go back to that. Who no longer follow in a, or for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. What's he mean by all that? Well, he means there's been a change, a fundamental change to things. God has declared an end to sin's control. How? By the sacrifice of Christ. Christ coming in the flesh. God in the flesh took on humanity. Was it humanity exactly like ours? Well, no, 
because there was one difference. Not a descendant of Adam. Not tainted by sin. Lived among us, was tempted, but did not sin. And then died as the perfect sinless sacrifice to atone, to pay the price for my sin, your sin, the sins of the world. Because all the sacrifices up until that point, all the yearly sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, all of them pointed towards the perfect sacrifice God would provide, but none of them were ever said to be the perfect sacrifice. They pointed somewhere. They pointed to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of God. Christ is God coming in the flesh and doing what we could not do. In fact, that's that's where it picks up there in verse 3 when we read it. Law of Moses, unable to save us because the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. God stepped in, changed everything. And in verse 4, he did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful natures, but instead follow the Spirit. I said some translations of that, and it's it's a variance in translation. It's a legitimate variance. It can be read either way. Um, say fully satisfied in us instead of for us. And you may go, well, that really kind of changes things. In a certain sense, it does. But either way, it's it's not wrong. Um, God did satisfy the just requirements of the law in the sacrifice of Christ. But as we live in the control of the Spirit, no longer controlled by our sinful nature, but following the Spirit, we are manifesting the reality of the defeat of our sinful nature in our lives. So whether you read it for us or in us, it's still okay. Uh, They both fit with good grounded theology and both tie in with the rest of what Paul has to say. So we're good. Right. Picking up in verse 5, it says, Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. Even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life. Because you have been made right. Hang on. Page and one turn for me here. There we go. Because you have been made right with God. 
Yeah. So what does all that mean? Well, it's laying out the truth of our reality. And here Paul is not talking just to Christians. He is comparing those that are living under sin, dominated by sin, controlled by sin, and those living under the control of the Spirit. And there's a big distinction between those two groups, not just in the outcome, but in what leads to the outcome. He's not saying, well, there are Christians that follow Christ, but, well, they don't follow him real well, and they, they're slaves to their sin, and if they commit enough sin, they're going to die and go to hell. And, and That's not what he's saying. Here again, what Paul actually says in these verses those who are dominated by their sinful nature think about sinful things. So who would that be? That's the lost, those apart from Christ, those that do not have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. That's the difference. It's a world of difference. If you're dominated by sin, guess what dominates your life? Sin. If you were dominated by the Spirit, what dominates your life? The Spirit. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. That's a statement of fact. If sin controls your mind, you're headed one way, death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Again, the two options. Slave to sin, slave to righteousness. Which is it? For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. You may go, but I know some people that don't know Christ, and they're nice people, and they're there. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It can be nice, but it's nicely wrong. A person can be a wonderful, kind person but they're bound for hell and they cannot please God. They will remain hostile to God, barring their surrender to God, barring their acceptance of his invitation of grace by faith. Goes on in verse seven. It being the nature that was hostile to God, the sinful nature, it never did obey God's laws, and it never will. Now, mind you, he's talking to Jewish background and Gentile background, Christians there in Rome, mostly Christians there in Rome, and he's pointing these things out, and that, that's almost a jab there to the Jewish background that you know never did obey God's laws, and it never will. You had the laws, but did you run afoul of those laws? Sure. Why? Because sin doesn't obey God. In fact, sin is disobedience to God, by definition. It goes on in eight that those, or that's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Not occasionally won't, or occasionally do things that upset God. No, they can never please God. Why? Because they are out of relationship with Him. Paul describes it elsewhere as being enemies of God. But see, God doesn't reject us because we were his enemies. He loves us. 
and Christ came while we were still sinners to die for us, that we might be made right with God. The invitation is extended. Will we take that invitation? Will we rely on him? Well, going on, because I want to continue to unpack these verses. Verse 9, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You know, so that's the reality if you're controlled by your sinful nature. But now we're going to talk about you. And you, as a believer, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Now, how do you know if you have the Spirit of God living in you? Well, the rest of the verse. It's a parenthetical statement. He says, and remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you trusted in God for salvation through Christ? If you have, congratulations, you have the Spirit of God living in your life. So you are not in that other camp. Now, how well do you let the Spirit control your life? We may have some work to do in that area. But we have been set free from that dominion of sin because we have the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we didn't have any hope of resisting the dominion of sin in our lives. But with the Spirit, we can overcome sin in our lives. Does it mean we become sinless? No. But it means we're not controlled by that sin anymore. That sin is not what we're a slave to anymore. And so... We get into what the theological term we use is sanctification. We then spend the rest of our lives submitting more and more to the control of the Spirit, being sanctified by the presence of God in our lives, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the, as uh, Gordon Fee in his book, The Empowering Presence, describes it, the empowering presence of God in our lives. One of the first things he does is empower us to overcome sin. Going on in verse 10, and Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. There is the thing that makes all the difference, being made right with God. If you've been made right with God, you have the Spirit of God living in you. You are no longer a slave to sin. You may be struggling with sin. You may have some constant battles with sin in areas of your life. But you are not a slave to sin. You have been set free. And you have the very presence of God in your life, the Holy Spirit of Christ, in your life. And that means things are different for you. And yeah, this body's going to die, but that doesn't have to be the end of things. All right. Now, in the next couple verses, picking up in 11, he really drives it home. He says in verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. You want to know the bounds of the difference that the Spirit of God in your life makes? 
Jesus rose from the grave. He rose from the dead. The same spirit that did that lives in you. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? In fact, not only that, he says he will give life to your mortal bodies by that same spirit living in you. He goes on, therefore, I love it when Paul says therefore, because it means he's going to sum it up. He's going to take everything he's been saying, and he's going to say, this is what it means in your life. He says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do urges you to do. No believer can honestly say the devil made me do it because you've got the spirit of Christ in your life. You have been set free from the dominion of sin. You will still sin, but it will be because you chose to sin, not because you're a slave to sin. Old habits die hard. It's easy to fall back into what's comfortable and familiar, but life is different for you and you are not a slave to your sin anymore. You have the Spirit of God at work in your life, empowering you. You have God shaping your conscience, convicting you of the sin in your life so that you can confess it, receive forgiveness, move sorry, move forward. You can do that. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. 13. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So we're back to that dichotomy. There's two things going on. You will either live by your sinful nature and you will die. Or you will live through the Spirit and you will have life. Those are the only options. So again, the choice is presented Again, Paul is reminding the church at Rome, hey, there are only two options in this reality. There is the option that you are controlled by the Spirit of God and you find life because you've been given a right relationship with God through His Spirit. How do you know that? Because you have received His Spirit. Or you haven't received His Spirit and you're in the camp of those that are still slaves to sin and that only leads to death. No second option. No, well, occasionally it doesn't. There's no exception to it. Being a slave to sin leads to death. So he simply poses to the church at Rome this question, this this challenge. You know, therefore, this is the reality, these two options. And so in 13, for if you live by its dictates, by sin's dictates, you're going to die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you're going to live. Pick an option. Either you're living by sin or you're living by the Spirit. And Paul is presenting to Rome those two things and basically telling him, which camp are you in? Which outcome do you want for your reality? And if you've been living as a slave to sin, there's another option and you can take it. But if you claim you're right with God and you're living that way, understand you're not. 
And see, he was challenging those that came in and said, no, if we follow the law, then we're right with God. If we're circumcised, then we're right with God. If we're a descendant of Abraham, we're right with God. If we do enough good stuff and don't do enough bad stuff, we're right with God. And he's going, no, you're a slave to sin unless you have the spirit of God in your life. And how do you get that? It's God's grace through faith in him. That's it. So now that we've discussed all that, which camp are you in? That's what he's presenting to him at Rome. And it is not just an explanation of reality. It is a call to action. It is Paul basically giving an invitation to the folks there at Rome in the church. That if they were putting their faith and their trust in something other than Christ, it was a wake-up call saying it's time to place your faith in Christ because the other outcome is death. So pick the right one. Well, in verse 14, Paul picks up this idea of, of being adopted as children of God. So not only has God come in the flesh and died as a perfect sacrifice, atoning for our sin, rising again, giving us his very presence, his Holy Spirit in our lives, the Spirit of Christ in our lives. But our relationship with God has changed from being an object of creation to something else. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs to God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Now, what does he say in those few powerful verses? Let me give you some background. Some background on the first century Greco-Roman world and a little bit on the Hebrew world as well. Adoption existed back then. Okay, either whether under the Hebrew society or the Greco-Roman society, you could adopt. In fact, the Roman emperor uh, Augustus, Octavius, he was adopted by his, uh, I guess, uncle and gained full heirship. Um, as in, he became a full heir, not an airship that you'd fly in. That would just be weird. Now, he gained all the rights of being a natural-born child. In fact, in Greco-Roman society, as I understand it, uh, having done a little bit of study on the topic, there was a quirk about adoption. You could legally adopt someone and declare them your legal heir as well, so that they inherited your name, your property, or your you know, they inherited everything from you. But there was a distinction between an adopted child and a natural born child. Because in Greco-Roman society, you could actually disown a natural born child. You could revoke their rights of being an heir. But if you legally adopted a child, 
you could not change it. So actually, adopted children in the Greco-Roman world had a more secure heir status than did the natural-born children. Is that kind of a weird quirk? And it's to Romans, citizens of the city of Rome, that Paul is writing this. So how do you think they would have heard it? How do you think it would have resonated with them? Hey, this is your relationship with God. You have been adopted. And then he uses an Aramaic term. He says, you've been adopted, and now you get to call him Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? Well, it's Aramaic word, and it means daddy. It's a a familiar, in-the-family unit expression of relationship to a father figure. And it's it's not father, it's daddy. There's a there's an intimacy and a closeness there. And so for Paul to use that phrase, he's saying, look, you you've gained full heirship. You have gained the rights of being an heir. You are completely in the family with God, so much so to the point that when you address the Father, you can call him Abba. Now, if we slip over to the Gospels, we can find where Jesus referred to the Father as Abba in prayer. So it it really ties us in there. He is making a strong case that by being led by the Spirit of God, having the Spirit of God in our lives, it changes our status of relationship with God. We are no longer his creation. We are his children, adopted children, co-heirs with Christ. And it's awesome. But we need to understand it's not all going to be fun. It's not all going to be, you know, just everything's great and everything rolls my way. Just as we are heirs of God's glory, we also share in the sufferings of Christ. Hmm. There's something to chew on. Now, as we get into verse 18, he starts talking a little bit more about this spirit of Christ, the spirit of of glory, what all this is. So let's unpack these verses as we go through them. Verse 18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal in us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. 
including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that can't be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them His glory. His glory. Wow, there's so much in that passage. There is, we're running from Genesis to Revelation here, all in these few verses. And I know it's kind of a long section for me to read, but still, it's just powerful. As he's talking about it, he describes the effects of sin, not just on humanity, not just that we people have experienced the effects of sin, have experienced slavery to sin, have experienced the curse when we were cast out of the garden. But maybe we forget sometimes that sin corrupts, sin twists, sin distorts and it destroys. And not just people, our world. Look at the state of nature itself. You want to know what's wrong with our world? Sin. Sin. That's what's wrong. We live under a curse. And here in this passage, Paul picks up with, just as in Genesis, there's a, a personification of creation almost. Um, it's this idea that that, hey, it's not just us. Even to the idea of if we don't praise God, then the rocks are going to cry out in praise of God. You know, um, all of creation, we've already seen this in Romans, all of creation declares his glory. All of creation is longing for things to be made right, for this corruption of sin to be cleared away. And the day is coming. We have already been declared the children of God, but we have not yet seen what that looks like fully, what it is to fully be heirs of God. We haven't seen it yet. We're in this already, but not yet tension. And it's not just us. Our whole world, all of creation 
is caught in that tension. And while we're caught in that tension, we long for what we know is out there. We long for what we know is coming. Creation itself longs for things to be made right. In fact, Paul uses this this interesting description here of of, uh, groaning and longing and, and and he even uses the the metaphor of uh, groaning as if in the pains of labor or pains of childbirth. What's he mean by that? Well, if you think about it, it's creation. That there is pain and agony in giving birth. And then there is new life. And there is joy. And we see creation firsthand as we meet this new life. To use that metaphor for, well, for us and for all of creation, for we know that all creation, verse 22, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You know, we know it's coming. It's just not here yet. We place our hope in it because we know it's coming but it's just not here yet. There's that expectation in our Christian life. And then he reminds us of a few things while we're in this time of tension, this already with God, but not yet fully realized, this children of God, yet we haven't seen what it is to fully be heirs of God. And he says, The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Here's an example. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. Oh, we try, but we fall short. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And I I don't understand that to be, you know, some secret prayer language or something. To me, it's more visceral than that. It's more fundamental than that. It comes down to those times we just don't know what to pray for, or we're just overwhelmed. We don't have the words. Have you ever been at that point where you're crying out to God? I mean, you're literally crying before God because you're so overwhelmed with with a sense of burden for someone or, or with some situation or something, and you just don't have the words, will understand the Holy Spirit of God in your life makes up the difference. The Holy Spirit of God in your life, well, makes up the difference, probably isn't the best way to express that, steps in. Because as Paul says it, and the Father who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. I can't explain how that happens. But God's Spirit living in us is so intimately connected to who we are and yet is still intimately connected to God the Father because the Trinity, 
that we are brought into that relationship in a way I can't explain, but in a way that as Paul is basically saying here, God understands. Even when you don't know how to express it, God understands. Because that's what the relationship is. We as believers have been brought into this incredible relationship. And uh, here I'd, I'd love to draw diagrams, but I'm not going to do that. But understand, God exists as Trinity, eternally in fellowship with himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three but one, in constant relationship. When we place our faith in Christ, we're united with Christ. We receive the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. In a certain sense, what happens there is we are invited into the fellowship that is the Trinity. Not we become God, but we become united with God invited into that relationship. And that means some incredible things. And as we read, particularly the New Testament, we see over and over again how profoundly that plays itself out. So when Paul talks about life through the Spirit, Understand there's a connection to God there that does not exist apart from that relationship. And it means everything. And although we've, we've grasped the edges of it, although we know that we are, are children of God and we have experienced some of that freedom, because in Christ we have been set free, we not yet have seen what it fully means. So we long for that. But in the meantime, we catch these glimpses where even in our prayers, when we don't have the words, we know God understands because the Spirit conveys that. So it's a, that, that's a glimpse of what we see now. A glimpse of what we long for that's coming. And now Paul kind of rounds out the rest of the chapter with a discussion of the, the power of God's love for us, that, that nothing separates us, that there, there aren't boundaries that we can cross and, and drop off. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Listen to what he says. Coming off of that discussion about being children of God, that already not yet, that longing, that hope, expectation, in verse 31, he says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? You know, what can we say about it? If that's our reality, what can we say? Well, here it is. If God is for us, who could ever be against us? That doesn't mean people won't stand in opposition to us, but it means if that's the kind of relationship we have with God, and if that's the hope we have for the future, what beats that? I mean, who could stand up against that and win? Really? 
there's no comparison. And that's what Paul's emphasizing there. There is no comparison. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us. Now, there's a a heavy uh, implied reference there to Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac, and in an act of faith, knowing that God had promised descendants, that Abraham was a child of promise. He didn't didn't know how it was all going to play out. But Abraham knew that God had made the promises and God was faithful. And if God said, go sacrifice Abraham, then God was going to work it out. So he was willing to do it. Now God stayed his hand and provided another sacrifice. But all of that was pointing forward to this day where God would provide the sacrifice of his own son for us, for our sin, to make us right with him, that that day was coming. So since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us, wouldn't he also give us everything else? I mean, if he's willing to go that far, then he's already gone to the extreme. So shouldn't everything else just kind of be a no-brainer? Shouldn't everything else be obvious? Verse 33, Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. See, nobody else has standing to judge us because God has given us right standing with him. Not that we're perfect, but we are in right relationship with God through faith in Christ. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Well, as the scripture says, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. That's from Psalm 44. No, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. In other words, it doesn't matter what other people's opinions are. They can try to condemn. They can say, oh, no, look at God doesn't love you. Look at how you're suffering. You know, if God really loved you, then you would have everything you want and, and everything would be great. And there, you wouldn't get sick and people you love wouldn't die and, and bad things wouldn't happen in your life. And you've heard it. Even some believers fall into that trap. They start hearing all that and they think, well, look at my life. I'm having hardships in my life. God must not love me. Well, there must be something wrong in my relationship with God. Well, yeah, the thing that's wrong in your relationship with God is you're not living in your faith in Him. 
He will see you through. Place your hope and your faith in Him. Understand you are a child of God. And you know that already. You have the Spirit of God in your life. And all that that means. And we're all longing for the day that we fully realize what it is to be a co-heir with Christ. It doesn't matter what the world says. What matters is the truth in Christ. And so, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what's said. It doesn't matter how anyone else judges us. What matters is verse 37. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory, not just victory, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And he goes on in verse 38. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fear for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that has been revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm not even going to elaborate on those passages. They are so beautiful and eloquent, declaring the truth, the confidence that each of us should have in Christ as our Savior and Lord. Because in Christ, everything changed again. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fear for today, our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What greater encouragement do we need? Can we all make that claim that Paul's making? All those things are around. All those are the power of hell is out there. The devil is actively at work. Life happens. Death happens. There are spiritual forces at war. We have fears about today and we have worries about tomorrow. But none of that, none of that can separate us from God. Why? Because the love of God is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're His. And that, that is everything.
Stand firm in your faith in Christ. Trust in Him. And if you don't know Him, if you haven't in faith reached out for His grace and forgiveness, it's time to make a change. Because living as a slave to sin only leads to death. Choose life in relationship with God through Christ. Choose life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is overwhelming. Father, what what you gave Paul to say in these passages, the bold declarations of faith, the, the truth that is laid out before us, even the words to express our, our longing, that we know we are already in you, and yet we know there is more. Lord, the confidence that is given to us by knowing that we have your spirit, your very presence in our lives, empowering us, seeing us through, and that nothing, nothing can separate us from your love. Father, we thank you for that encouragement. We thank you for that truth. That is reality. Thank you for revealing that to us. Lord, thank you for calling us your children, for adopting us, that we may call you Abba, Daddy, Father. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you that you help us to understand what we read and study that we might live it out. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.